You are listening to CFRO Community Radio Station. The upcoming show, Conscious Living Radio, is a program that explores frontiers of consciousness, spirituality, personal growth, emerging paradigms in psychology, health, science, and innovative philosophies that reflect commitment to the advancement of individual, social, and global transformation. Living Radio. I'm Tasha Sims. And I'm Mark Ron. And the show on Facebook live right now. And then on our regular spot Wednesday night, 6 to 7 on Co-op Radio 100.5 FM. And today we're taking a look at Buddhist ritual and practices. Our, our guest, Ji Hung Padma, um, she's combined an academic career with her vocation as a spiritual teacher, serving as director of spirituality and education, as well as a Buddhist chaplain at Wellesley College for 14 years. She's taught meditation at Harvard, the Esalen Institute, Omega Institute, holds a doctorate in psychology, and she's taught and trained in Asia and North America for 20 years, currently serves as director of comparative religion and philosophy program at the California Institute for Human Science. Her private practice integrates both Eastern and Western psychology with indigenous and core shamanic and energy psychology, all focused on supporting people to experience the fullness of joy. And wisdom. And her latest book, Field of Blessings Buddhist Healings Through the Field of Consciousness, has been called a major resource for awakening and healing for those on a spiritual path. So today we're going to take a look at those essentials of Buddhist healing, its rituals, its practices, and a whole holistic view of healing both body and mind. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So what inspired you to write Field of Blessing and focus on ritual and consciousness? Um, well, I, two things. One is that as a Buddhist teacher, um, I have been aware for many years of how really valuable uh, ritual is, how essential by performing weddings, uh, memorials, baby blessings. It, those uh, were a kind of... Um, initiation for me just to actually feel in, through the energy um, between two people for instance um, at a at a wedding you know or or feeling that immense closure and clearing at a memorial service it it, it came to me that even though you know on some sort of cognitive level everybody already understands what's going on we need to get it into our bones, and, and ritual is very effective at doing that. Hmm. And I focused on healing rituals because actually um, doing long meditation retreats is very intense for the body, and um, sitting uh, 10 hours a day for 100 days at a time does give some wear and tear to the joints. And it is true absolutely that all of the retreats um, that I was able to do on some level, I relied on those people who were trained in healing, in, in traditional healing. And there were people in Korea or, or people in the United States that I turned to to help to make sure that my body was in shape and that it, you know, it stayed in shape. And this is my way of expressing gratitude and giving something back mm. to them for their gift. And what's the title, Field of Blessing? 
signify for you? It, it, field of blessings is a traditional Buddhist term which uh, refers to the way that in, an enlightened teacher, um, just through their way of being in the world, helps um, to shift things for people, you know, to bring uh, clarity to situations, to bring healing. And to whatever degree that we embody that awakened heart-mind, then we also are, are shifting the world around us. You know, they say that when one person practices loving kindness, people six degrees away become kinder. I love that. And that hopefully we'll dig right into that and talk about in a bit um, how people who are, you know, we're going through a really challenging time, but there's always, always something we can do when we include that field of energy. So I, yeah. I, I want to land in that for sure. But maybe you could give us, let me ask you this. What do you think the biggest misconception is around Buddhism? Around uh, Buddhism, the greatest misconception is that it is, um, what is the, what is the word? Um, that it is um, like life denying, you know, or, you know, escapist, or, or only concerned with the ultimate goal of enlightenment. And it's, or, or nihilistic, right? Um, because we do have a, an inward focus. But actually, from the very beginning, Buddhism has been concerned with bringing about healing on both the ultimate and the relative levels. You know, the very earliest monks were also trained in healing. And Shakyamuni, the the, um, historical Buddha, was very clear about this. You know, in the sutras, you see him visiting a monastery where one of the monks is lying ill, and he goes and he takes care of the monk personally, you know, cleaning him, you know, changing um, the bed, and he says to the other monks, you know, whoever serves the sick serves me. You know, like there's, you, you can't just focus on meditation. We also have to work uh, to be hands-on in caring for each other. I love that. That's, um, it, it's so practical. And and yes. you're right. I think that is the biggest misconception is people think they you're med, even with meditation period that you're somewhere yes. zenning out, removing yourself from the world. But what you're talking about is being a part of it, but from a place of consciousness, which yes. is attainable for everyone right now. <laughs> yes, uh, the, the the religious scholar Karen Armstrong has said in her her uh, book on the Buddha, she says there's a, a innate affinity uh, between the earth and a, and a very realized person. Mm-hmm. And so that at that very moment when Buddha got to enlightenment, you know, right then he was touching the earth and the earth was bearing witness. Um, so that is something that I always return to. And um, that's why I think that these images of the medicine Buddha always show uh, one hand uh, reaching down, touching the earth and, and grasping uh, medicinal herbs. And just as that earth reality is relevant, so is this hunger for the sacred. Why do you think the Western yeah. world is so hungry for an experience of the sacred? Um, it's because we have uh, information overload. You know, we're, we're, we're very busy and we're multitasking. We have a lot of information coming in, you know, so we don't really need more information. You know, we need a way... Of, of connecting with our deep meaning, mm-hmm. you know, like, so that, so that all of this has a place to rest in our heart and mind, and so that the mind can come down into the heart. You know, that's the place where we have a balanced life. Otherwise, 
it's what um, the Tibetan teachers always say about Westerners, which is, you know, um, a little bit too much lung. Um, and lung is not like the physical uh, Western lung, but it's a, it's a, a quality. You know, it's, it, if we have too much lung, it's like having too much um, mental energy without enough grounding. Mm-hmm. And so when we work with the sacred, we're working in a way that um, connects body, mind, and spirit and brings it into harmony and balance with each other. And this individual, you talked about how um, everything we do has impact on the whole. So if you could kind of break down individual awakening, I think there was something you talked about, Indra's net, maybe you could yes. share what that is, and how the this how how it enters what we do enters the collective field how does it bring about healing can you touch on that yes but i'm going to do a little bit of a diversion um through interpersonal neurology courtesy of the work of daniel siegel so daniel siegel is is a this great um neuropsychologist who has uh, really talked about the mind as an embodied and relational process And so what's significant about that is that the old Western medical paradigm was that the mind was just a function of the physical brain. And if we have that idea that the mind is just a function of the brain, then that's the same as um, self-isolating. That if we think that our whole um, being is right up here, then we don't actually need, you know, the ramifications are we don't really need to care too much about other people or the environment because all we are is this sort of like walking brain. But on the other hand, if we understand that the mind is an embodied, you know, throughout the body and relational, you know, coming into being through our connections with each other process, which means it's always changing, then we're naturally going to care for others because they're part of our um, you know, in, in terms of Buddhism, part of our rupa skanda, you know, they're part of our consciousness and we're part of theirs. You know, so the whole ethics of things shifts and changes. That actually is a um, reflection of what in Buddhism we call Indra's net. So you, we can imagine this net with the vertical threads of the net representing time, horizontal threads representing space, where each of those threads is meeting. There's a crystal. And each crystal is reflecting not only every other crystal, but every reflection of every other crystal, right? So just in that way, we're always coming into being together. We're composed of these reflections of each other. And that has implications for what happens during healing. You know, if a healer is working on someone else, they're also working on themselves. And as we work on it, one individual, we're also working on the community. You know, how could we not? Mm-hmm. It's so beautiful. And it, it takes personal healing, societal healing, and makes it an inter- interdependent process instead of it being separate, which is so much of what I'm seeing in the world today when people pick sides, when they're polarized. It's like me versus as opposed to we, and let's understand what's happening here. And so what you're yeah. touching on just feels like such a important uh, mindset to offer the world, especially at this time with so much uh, divisiveness occurring. Yes, that, that, that shift from the I to the we is really part of the healing. That when I looked at the, the um, elements of healing uh, ritual, one of those was always the reconnection with one's relationships and community. That's one of the outcomes. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. that through this connection with the healer, ultimately one hopes that all of the person's relationships will become healing relationships. You know, I I saw this article, and I don't think it was connected with your book, but I'm sorry, I'm scanning a lot of material these days. But it it fits into what we're talking about. And it it talked about when anxiety, so many people are anxious, when anxiety is off the charts, and the emotions are not regulated. And it talked about, you could independently self soothe, you could learn all these techniques, and they work. It's not like they don't work to lower your anxiety and calm you down. But then it moved to co-regulation and I hadn't really explored that particular word that Mm. you know I would say wounds have occurred in relationship wounds are healed in relationship that's my um, perspective but this word co-regulate with another human being I mean I sat there and I went wow so many people are are focused on making themselves better like in, yeah. in my practice, yeah. in my, the psychology yeah. practice, and still not in relationship and with COVID even less in physical contact with other human beings. Yeah. So let's just go one more step into the idea of, I mean, would you say that healing without um, that co-creativity with another human being is actually not complete healing? Would you yes, I would. I would actually definitely say that. Um, and it, all kinds of healing. You know, I think of, of Peter Levine, uh, who's somatic mm. experiencing, draws quite a bit on traditional Buddhist practices. And he, uh, during the pandemic, would say, what, we don't need social distancing. We need physical distancing, but, but we absolutely need to stay socially connected because that's where the healing happens. And... Um, you know, within my book, I, I talk quite a bit about this, that through establishing um, inner space, you know, the, the healer is then able to meet another person and, and, and create sacred space right then and there, you know, through their quality of awareness. And then a kind of um, uh, attunement begins to happen. You know, so the therapeutic relationship, you know, takes on some sort of depth that the, if the person... If the therapist is really present and really mindful and empathic, then um, they begin to attune together, as in therapy, that you, you see that the emotions attune, you know, the, there's a kind of attunement of, uh, you know, meeting of the minds. And then also people who have done the studies show that there's um, an attunement of the magnetic field of the healer's heart with mm-hmm. the magnetic field of the other. If, if their field is congruent and, you know, and resonant, then it has that ability to make shifts naturally, um, that these, these fields will attune together. And that brings us into a kind of interoception, you know, where the something is happening, you know, on such a deep body level, it's beyond and before words. Yeah. Um, So here's the thing is this I think you call it relational empathy is as a component that's yeah. uh, an ingredient of what we're discussing. So yeah. many people don't have a heart for themselves either. So like either one out of balance, if it's not self and other, it seems to be off. And so lots of my clients can empathize with other people but they absolutely have no empathy, true empathy for themselves. So can we dig in there a little bit? Because I think a lot of people wrestle with parts of themselves that they don't like, and they just want to get rid of them. And my line is, 
if you want to get rid of it, it's going to stay. <laughs> so I have a feeling maybe I'm, I've got a little more Buddhist uh, <laughs> than I yeah. thought I did. <laughs> yeah, and I, it's, uh, it does seem like that, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, when we have a, a kind of um, a complex you know, where we're, we're not able to love ourselves, that's, that's also the ego. It's just an inverted ego, right? Because when we are uh, creating that around ourselves, that is an, another illusion of separation. And then also still the work is to bring the mind within the heart and do loving kindness practice for oneself. And now there's a beautiful um, practice that uh, Lama John McCransky, who is a um, professor of comparative theology at Boston College, developed. And it, it's actually in full detail in his book, Awakening Through Love. It, but it's adapted from uh, the traditional Tibetan um, devotional practices, it's, but in a way that anyone can practice it. So with this, we take a moment to envision all of those people you know, who from the very beginning of our lives have carried some wish for our well-being. You know, it's, it's his, uh, Nyoshul Ken Rinpoche, who is a, a Tibetan Dzogchen teacher, has said that a moment of enlightenment is simply a moment of recognizing those blessings that have been within us and mm. around us from the very beginning. So this is a way to tap into some of those blessings like unconditional love. So we call to mind all of those people um, perhaps our brothers and our sisters, our parents, our grandparents, our teachers and friends, and just calling them so vividly to mind, it's like we can see them right there. And as we see them, you know, they don't have to be Mother Teresa, just trusting that wish of love they do carry. Seeing them in our mind's eye, sensing and seeing that wish of love, like a brilliant light that is streaming forth from them, filling our heart. And, uh, you know, fully trusting that more than any self-limiting thought, fully taking it in so that our heart itself is illuminated and opened, open to ourselves, open to others, and letting that brilliant light then illuminate every cell of our body all the way down through our fingers and toes. So then we bask in that, just fully accepting and receiving, like, like, um, the way that a deer might bask in the forest or a puppy in sunlight. Mm. And as we, as we do that, um, then we're actually prepared to offer, you know, something from our own, um, you know, overflowing basic goodness. How would you support someone who struggles with receiving? Like this blessing sounds so beautiful. The thought of opening to that feels like nourishment and food, literally for the soul. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there are people who can't receive, they can barely receive a compliment, forget about something so powerful. How would you support them to move toward that process? Well, I think I think it is, it's, it's, this is the training wheels, you know, that even when we, when we, um, we step into it, you know, when we, we feel resistance, if we keep practicing with this, there will be an effect. What I've found is that everyone just about everyone has had some experience of love in their lives, you know, even if it, of course, was imperfect because it was human. Um, you know, tapping into that on whatever level that it has showed up 
Yeah, and for some people, that love might have been from a cat or a dog, and exactly. and and we can we can work with that too. Yeah. Yeah. But then as we practice receiving it, um, that that muscle will strengthen and, and we'll then be able to uh, rest in that for longer periods of time. And, and that then makes it possible for us to have like a healthy um, container for ourselves, you know, like a, um, not, not abandoning ourselves. And, mm-hmm. and that that kind of healthy attachment is then a much stronger basis for connecting to others. Are there universal elements that um, we can talk about in this process of spiritual uh, healing or transformation? Because you're not really healing spiritually. You're remembering, I guess, right? Yeah. Would you agree well, with that? We can, we can, we can play with that. Um, absolutely. I, there are three basic elements that the researcher Joan Costiolino um, discovered through her work uh, studying indigenous healing, particularly in the Caribbean. And those um, practices were, um, first of all, um, empathy, like a radical empathy, uh, restoration of relationship, and a shift in consciousness. So what, what she saw with the traditional healers is that their consciousness had shifted and that made it possible for them to extend a radical empathy, this kind of thing that is beyond and before words. And that empathy then reconnected um, those who were healed with their relationships and their community. You know, I, in, in my research, I would extend those core components a little bit by including things like intention, and creating inner space and um, creating sacred space, you know, which then provides um, the right environment for that therapeutic attunement. And within that, then we have um, evoking of sacred power, is, is, you know, in the traditional way from what I've seen, which then restores and reconnects them, all of our relationships. So those are those are um, simply what I have found. You know, I feel like it is a pretty good contribution to th- these um, explorations of healing across cultures. But of course, um, you know, the work is still in progress. Well, let's light up the whole idea of ritual, um, and because it's far more than symbolic, yeah. right? The way you right. approach it, and you talk about um, archetypal change of consciousness that then can catalyze physical healing. Can you just say more about that? The um, archetypal change in consciousness? Mm-hmm. And how it affects yeah. how that's connected with physical healing. Well, quite simply, the healers that I interviewed said that, that um, you can't solve the problem on the level that it was created. You know, so if a person has you know, a particular block, you know, this sort of block around receiving or a block in, in feeling connected to others. Um, what they'll do is, is try to, you know, come, come in with the fullness of empathy and let this, this relationship, you know, between the healer and the client be a, the kind of training ground through which, um, you know, their, their uh, consciousness can shift. 
and they can perceive themselves, you know, in a new way, you know, perceive themselves in connection, perceive, you know, the heart combined with the mind, you know, perceive and experience themselves embodied. You know, so sometimes um, it's a spiritual ritual as we think of it. Sometimes the ritual is using acupuncture or other traditional modalities. But the, the, the core piece of using those traditional modalities is intention. You know, so that the, the, the healer's own motivation and intention then provides the ground through which uh, different modalities can enact the shift in consciousness. And when you use the word archetypal, how yes. does that fit in with this, with what we're seeing? Archetypal, yes. Um, that is a, a sort of important uh, lens for me because I think when we, we talk about archetypal, it's really talking about our way of making meaning, that, that we are... I think it was maybe Mercia Eliade, you know, who said that we are, you know, homo symbolicus, you know, that we're just naturally as human beings drawn to meaning making and symbols. And because they tap into something, again, that's greater than the individual, they tap into a wisdom that is timeless. And so within Buddhism, for instance, archetypally, we have these five elements that are part of nature. And we are those elements, and those elements are us. So in traditional um, Tibetan medicine, there's all kinds of ways of, of balancing the elements, you know, um, air, fire, earth, water, and space. And so those can be a way of um, noticing where things have come out of balance or where elements of the self might have been projected or disowned. And, and restoring um, things to the, that place of wellness and wholeness. If we look, for instance, at a Tibetan sand mandala, where the sand mandala is also a, a way of collective healing. And so the sand mandala has all of these five elements represented through the colors, uh, but they're brought into um, a place of perfect symmetry using ratios that were developed more than a thousand years ago. And within this, the idea is that all of these elements have a place. You know, nothing is discarded. And so it also within us, you know, all the energies that we have, even the ones that seem to be difficult, you know, all of these have a place. You know, there's a place for the emotions. There's a place for our action. There's a place for, you know, a really sharp wisdom. And there's a place for groundedness. And we know this through the physical body. And we also know that these elements as part of our consciousness, we see them in nature. And we recognize that beauty and that power within nature because we are also that. Um, so a lot of the way that the archetypes show up in traditional Buddhist healing are, is through the five elements. But also because, um, you know, human beings uh, relate to these symbols and images, we have within Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, this immense storehouse of um, archetypes. Uh, for instance, the Medicine Buddha. You know, so the Medicine Buddha is, is it's referring to Shakyamuni Buddha, you know, who um, was what we say the great physician, you know, healing the afflictions of body, mind, and spirit. 
But ultimately, that medicine Buddha is the awakened part of ourselves that just knows what it needs. Mm-hmm. That you know that the quality we have of of self healing. And 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 that's just really the tip of the iceberg because to talk about the archetypes within Buddhism would take I don't know I think a couple of years. But you're you're talking about creating a kind of relationship with those energies that are really an aspect of self. Is would that be correct to say? That is yes, that is. Mm-hmm. And for you, when you use the term sacred space, you mentioned attention and intention maybe for people who aren't familiar with ritual uh, yeah can you just define what sacred space means how someone would begin in their own home to Mm. say i'm going to create sacred space and do a ritual sure well the 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 really begins with inside you know the inner making space which is which is clearing um the computer screen of the mind you know, in our culture, we do all of this multitasking. We even have this saying in English, to kill two birds with one stone, which is like, why? Why? So this is different. You know, we're only going to relate to one bird and one stone, if you will, and bring everything all the, the, from the back of the, the ten directions to one point, which is just this moment. And we can, as we do that, we can connect with the breath and let the breath be a touchstone. You know, can we be, bring awareness to the place where the in-breath ends and the out-breath begins? And just let that be enough, you know, noticing, um, noticing the in-breath, noticing the out-breath. And as we do that, then the mind begins to settle, settle, settle. And it becomes clear. And, you know, and if we had more time, we could just rest in that for maybe 15 minutes. But um, just touching into that, however briefly right now, you know, feeling where our body is connecting to the ground um, and feeling that great ebb and flow of the tidal rhythm of the breath. So now from this place, if we were meeting another person, we could envision the place, you know, where our, our energy field is meeting theirs. And seeing that, it, that place itself as a kind of, um, um, like a, a little bit like an oval, you know, where the, the two circles are connecting. And, and that right there between two people is the sacred space. Mm-hmm. And then also the place where we are the room that we're in or the car, you know, if you're listening to this in the car, it it could be the car. Why not? So in a traditional Buddhist um, framework, one would call on the guardians of the four directions. Um, That is the traditional archetypal language. But for the, for the purposes of simplicity and making this more accessible um, to everybody, in my book, I just describe it as envisioning golden roses at each of the four corners so that it, right now to our left, um, clear in front of us, we see a golden rose at the ground and another golden rose at the um, ceiling. To the right, clear in front of us, we see a golden rose at the base and a golden rose at the ceiling. So these golden roses and, and each of the axes are connected to each other by a golden thread. And then also um, they are connected to 
um, the, the two bases are connected to each other through a golden thread, and the two at the ceiling level are connected by a golden thread. Now envisioning um, another golden thread going from the left base to the right uh, ceiling, and from the right base to the left ceiling. Now envisioning this again um, to your right, from the um, right front to the right back, and in the right back there is another golden rose at the ground and another one at the ceiling. So these at, at the back are connected to each other with a, a beautiful golden thread. Um, the right back and the right front bases are connected by a golden thread. The right uh, um, ceiling and in the back and the front are connected by a golden thread. And then also the right front and right back are connected from their uh, base to the ceiling and also from uh, the base to the ceiling in the, in the other way, forming a kind of X shape. And now going from the back, uh, from the, the right base and the um, right back ceiling to the left back base and the left back ceiling, extending a golden thread from the um, left back base to the right back base, and from the left back ceiling to the right back ceiling. And then envisioning also from the left back base to the right back ceiling and the right back base to the left back ceiling. And then one more uh, going around to the front from the left back base to the um, left front ceiling and from the left front um, base to the left back ceiling. And also a golden thread running along from the left front base to the left back base and from the left front ceiling um, to the left back ceiling and so on across uh, the floor of the room where we are, from the um, left front base uh, to the right back base, and from the um, right ceiling, um, from the front uh, to the back. So across the, the ceiling, then, there is a, a kind of X where these um, threads are crossing. And also, um, we're forming a kind of cube. Right. And we can feel ourselves within that. And that gives a, another quality and presence to the space that we have around us. It's, we've basically extended our awareness into the room in a way that is much more thorough than we usually experience. And while you did an amazing job there, while it sounds complicated if your head is listening, the truth is you can't really do it wrong, right? If your eyes are yeah. closed... And you've got these gold, four golden, or more than four, got these golden roses and you're sending golden connectors. You can't really do it wrong. It's true. And um, the implications of being aware of our space in this way are huge. Um, mm -hmm. That uh, if we want to be in a state of well-being, uh, then it's important to know uh, what's in our space. It's important to have that dynamic awareness. I, I can't tell you how many um, of the injuries or 
um, yeah, kind of uh, un unexpected happenings are, are basically due to lack of situational awareness. Uh, you know, I can say for myself, you know, that there are times when I have, um, you know, like uh, injured my foot or twisted my ankle because of not having that quality of situational awareness. And this just allows us to be that much more mindful and, and present uh, through the fullness of ourselves. There's almost a kind of ownership also that without um, this consciousness, uh, uh, I'm thinking of, I don't know where the technique came from, but before as an actor, so I'm also an actor, I would, before each audition, I would yeah. open my crown chakra and send to the four corners a, a sort of golden, like, like Spider-Man, and then the same at the bottom from the, the opening in the soles of my feet. And I just walk into the room going, this room is mine and audition. Yeah. So I just owned the room in like an energetic way. I have no idea yeah. where that came from, but it's, it remi your process oh, really yeah. reminds me of that. I can really see that. Mm -hmm. that you, you, were, you were on this before I was. <laughs> I don't know why, but yeah, it's cool. Yeah. It, it, there is something beautiful about it, well, it's now. You can't own a space in the future or in the past. It's like right now. It's so immediate. Yeah. So you're now yeah. in your body, and this is the space. Precisely. Yeah. Beautiful. So let's move a little bit, if you don't mind, into childhood, because how we experienced early life, like we've talked about how important relationship is and healing in relationship and with others so the bonds that we form as kids are so vital in how we do relationships and both with ourselves and our own bodies and with other human beings. Can you get into a bit of the, uh, the limbic system and how our brain in early childhood, how it all influences emotions and body awareness yeah. and, and all that? The yeah, yeah it, will, it will be a kind of plot synopsis because it, it, it's, it's very detailed material in, yeah. in the book, but we're just going to uh, um, touch into that for a bit. So the fact is that we know through um, modern research that the um, amygdala, you know, which is this part of the brain that governs our primal emotions, is, is, is the part of the brain that is online for memory within the first two years of life. Within the first two years of life, when all of our relational patterns are being set, it's happening through the amygdala, which is the limbic system. It's, it's connected to the body consciousness, and it's connected to the emotions. You know, we don't have the prefrontal cortex completely online then, which would give us the ability to have conscious memories. And so as it is, uh, people will often have this fear of dogs, for instance, uh, that they can't quite name, but perhaps before they were two years old, they had some kind of um, frightening encounter with a dog. Or on the other hand, they might have an affinity for some kind of fragrance. And that might have been positively conditioned in their environment within those first two years of life. So... The, the challenge is that we have that um, patterning going on. And we often don't really know the contents of it, but it is um, having a very large effect upon our um, interpersonal relations. So, in fact, if uh, during those early years of life, we had a caregiver 
who was a bit dismissive, you know, not really um, accessible or emotional connection, you know, but kind of putting down those outreaches. Then those parts of the brain um, that are um, governing the emotional quality get a bit attenuated. You know, those, net, those neural networks are not as formed as they could be. And so our capacity to know our own feelings, our capacity to know the feelings of another is just not um, completely there. And, and that can be challenging. Um, on the other hand, we might have had a caregiver who was sometimes there and sometimes not, a bit preoccupied. And so we might have overexerted ourselves and to make sure that that caregiver was, was really attentive to us. We might then have a pattern of expecting that relationships are going to be hard work. And so in, in both cases, you know, whether um, the co uh, connection was, um, you know, dismissive where, or whether the connection was preoccupied, what happens is that the, um, the HPA axis, which is the um, hypothalamus and pituitary adrenal glands, that axis gets chronically overactivated. And that shows up in uh, adult life as maybe trouble sleeping, you know, butterflies in the stomach, feeling like we can't get really settled within our own skin. And it has um, connections with uh, depression as well. You have people who say they are flooded with feeling, they feel too much, they're extremely reactive. And then you yeah. have people who don't feel at all, and they think it's a good thing. That's always problematic. They think they're in control of their feelings. Yeah. But it's the exact same uh, extreme on this spectrum. Is that connected with what you're talking about in that initial yes, childhood? Positively, yes, yeah. which is that if, if the connection is not reinforced, then um, people will be a bit dismissive of their own feelings and those of others. Those are t uh, typically the patients who um, don't come into therapy unless, you know, they've been like forced to by someone else. They might yeah. can't come in kicking and screaming and they might be really resistant because they don't know what they're missing. On the other hand, the people who, um, you know, were uh, a little bit overactivated, uh, you know, in their limbic pattern, um, they have a lot of emotion and it might be overwhelming. And uh, some of that emotion might feel like it's a bit stuck in the past or it might surface through what Dan Siegel calls limbic lava. You know, oh, I don't know where that outburst came from, but I just kind of lost it for a moment there. Mm -hmm. And so that's the other side of it. And the, and the, the idea is to have a balance so that our, our um, prefrontal cortex and limbic system are in right relationship. There's not so much uh, input so that life becomes chaotic, but there's enough so that life doesn't become like rigid and, you know, completely centered in our head. And that is the work of what we would call um, healthy attachment or secure attachment. And that can be developed uh, just in the same process uh, connection between um, the client and the healer or between, you know, the, the client and whatever person in, in our grown-up life is going to be able to give us that quality of love that we seek. Mm -hmm. And this would be connected with how to, uh, the process of bringing the mind back into the heart, wouldn't it? Absolutely, positively, yes, the mind back into the heart. So in our, in our culture, we... Um, 
you know, very often our understanding runs ahead of our, our feelings, or, you know, or the feelings might uh, be really out of sorts. You know, but if we have the good connection between the mind and the heart, then we can be um, healthy adults in relationship. You know, we can hold a good space for ourselves, um, not abandoning ourselves, you know, basically uh, being a good inner parent to our inner child. And then this is going to ripple out to the people that we may contact with, you know, because we're uh, um, emotionally available and not preoccupied with our own um, inner process. We can be present out of the fullness of who we are. And, and we recognize that in others when we see and feel it. I, I love this. I love this conversation. I've got so much more, but I know we only have a few more minutes. So I want to make sure we cover a couple of areas that I'm curious about your take on. Um, do you see spiritual crisis as part of a healer's initiation? Is that uh, relevant? Completely. Yeah. Um, very often the people who actually uh, were um, called in, in some way to be healers. You know, those who are powerful healers now were able to recollect and say, you know, here's this moment when I just thought, you know, the bottom dropped out and everything was lost. And within that, though, I found access to a sort of deeper well, you know, which then makes it possible to go in and work with clients and, and know with certainty, you know, that what I need is going to drop in as, as I'm present with them. Or, you know, through this imbalance, which was affecting maybe the physical body, you know, the, the endocrine system or such, you know, through this, I actually discovered that um, I could heal it using Qigong or using um, Tibetan Buddhist meditation. And then that became the pathway through which I developed something that I could share with others. And and also so essential, I think you mentioned it in your book where how the healer is perceiving or their intention is such a massive part of the healing process. And yes. so if you, if you're actually not being authentic with yourself and, and aware and, and accepting, how, how can you possibly do that? You can't do the healer trying to heal other people to heal themselves. It happens, right? Symbiotically, yeah. but you've got to do, you've got to be responsible for your own perception. I guess is what I'm That's trying right. to say. Yes, yes. And that, and that um, healer's vision is something that the, they, um, the interviewees actually identified as something crucial that when they would walk in, they would see the patient in the most accurate way, which is, you know, in this more awakened way, you know, seeing their, seeing their wholeness and their wellness, even when the client isn't particularly able to see it themselves. And that then mm -hmm. serves as a magnet for the client to reattune, you know, to their own potential. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, I find if you come back with it, 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 my experience, I'll just do that because I'm not sure what the question <laughs> is. Um, when someone presents me, when I share what's going on for me, I, I don't stop there. That's just an entry, a portal. I'm trying yeah, to be oh, authentic. Sure. I'm saying, here's yeah. what's happening right this moment. I have no context of good and bad because I, I just don't. I've been working on it. Yeah. When someone comes back with an assumption that what I've just shared is A, bad, and B, needs to be changed, needs to be fixed, needs to be different, to me, it feels like a door just closed, mm -hmm. literally, because, and so it's a slippery slope with this, at the same time with my clients, I don't see anything wrong ever. I always see it as a portal or an opportunity, but there's a slippery slope between seeing the positive and 
stopping down a process because your perception is that something's wrong. Do you know what I mean? It's a both both and both and. There's mm-hmm. um, as Suzuki Roshi, who was a great Zen teacher, would say, uh, "You're all perfect as you are, and you would also all benefit from a little improvement." Mm-hmm. But the you know, so we talk we talk about the Buddha nature on the one hand as innate, right? So being able to see that sort of innate. Um, innate awakened nature, you know, just as things are. And then at the same time, you know, that the process of cultivation, which is where, you know, where are things in cultivation and and where could things be cultivated a little bit more? I love, I was just going to say it back to you, the word cultivation is like one of my favorite, because if I'm cultivating uh, kindness and acceptance in that moment of whatever it is I'm sharing, yeah, that to me is the healing. If I if I can do that with myself and get out of the polarity of good and bad, it's not shutting down the process. It continues to ripple both within my darker places, but also with the other human being if they're willing. Right? Yeah, yeah positively. I mean, yeah. what that reminds me of is this beautiful catamaran I saw today in San Francisco Harbor. It's a, a the catamaran is was it's a hundred feet. And it's called um, Energy Observer. It's traveled across the world uh, truly on the power of its renewable energy. You know, so it's got wind turbine uh, uh, poles and then also huge, huge uh, solar panels. And I saw that and I said to myself, that's like a vision of the future uh, because the message is that we have what we need, right? It's all here. Um, We just have to know it's here. You know, the sun is always shining, you know, the wind is always blowing. And when we tap into that, uh, then we have access to all the energy that we need. And so this, all of these practices are just a way of of bringing that light back in and reminding us we have what we need. So tell our listeners where they can get your book, Field of Blessing, Buddhist Healing Through the Field of Consciousness. Um, You can find that wherever books are sold. Um, Absolutely. You can find my work at the website uh, mountainpath.org. So like a mountain, uh, P-A-T-H dot O-R-G. And do you have any events or any uh, workshops or anything you'd like to tell our listeners about? I'll, I'll be teaching a workshop at Omega Institute in lovely Hudson River Valley of New York in uh, late September, but there's actually quite more um, events and things than I can really describe. So if you go to that website, they're all listed. I think Mark's going to list it as well, and we'll also put it on our website, consciouslivingradio.org. When the show airs, it's available as podcast or interview after, which I truly enjoyed. It's been awesome. So last Thank piece, you. anything yeah. from your heart to the world, what's your wish? What do you want to ripple out in this moment? Um, you know, may may all of our listeners um have happiness and the causes of happiness. May they be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May they never be separate from sorrowless bliss. May they dwell in equanimity, free from attachment and aversion. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us today. really have Thank loved you. our interview. We've been speaking with Ji Hong Padma about her book, Field of Blessing, Buddhist Healing Through the Field of Consciousness. Everybody have an awesome day.
You have been listening to Conscious Living Radio. For free show downloads, additional information about our guests and topics, or details about upcoming programs, check us out at ConsciousLivingRadio.org.